0: Metallica, here they come! The kings of metal! Hey, this is Jay Weinberg from Slipknot, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire.
1: Ooh.
2: Welcome to Middle Up Your Podcast, I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. This is episode 116, we've got a very awesome, exclusive interview happening very shortly with uh, Scott Mugford, who is with Blue Collar Customs, who, as most of you should know, builds custom cars with Mr. James Hetfield. Is that what they do at Blue Collar Customs? Could you imagine that, really? I thought that they were like an embroidery, uh, I thought they made like, like artisan chairs. I thought it was actual custom collars for your shirts. Oh, that would be great. But they only make them in the color blue. I right. thought it was very literal, but right. apparently, no, it's vehicles. Okay, cool. Yeah,
3: well, Scott reached <laughs> out to us after the Reclaimed Rust episode, which, as you all should know, there was a big exhibit, and it's still going on at the Peterson Automotive Museum in California, and Scott builds cars with James, and two of the cars they built together are featured there. For those of you who don't know the the names of them, the Straight Edge, which is a the purple Ford, the F100 truck, mm-hmm. real badass, it's like low to the rad. ground, Yeah, and then also the... Uh, the Iron Fist, which is the uh, 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 it's from the '30s, like a '30s Ford. Oh, okay, yeah, a 1936 Ford, the Iron Fist, which is sort of like a chrome looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard for me to describe these cars because I'm not really in that world, but yeah. they're super awesome. And, they're very cool, yeah. And even someone like me who doesn't understand that world very much can look at them and see that they're obviously pieces of art.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think the way you and I would be able to equate is by comparing it to nice gear, or something right. like a customable guitar or right. a drum set or something like that. And so he reached out after that, he
3: reached out to tell me that I had spelled his name wrong, <laughs> which that's, you know, it's always a fun introduction. Hey, you got my name wrong, dummy. Yeah, uh, I had put Scott Mumford, which I do believe was like an auto-correct situation so, yeah. on a Simple Cast. But so he, he reached out to say, hey, it's Mumford, and uh, you guys talked about me on the thing. And uh, I think Edgar Baradas, our friend from California, maybe told him about the show. That's cool. That's And awesome. I said, hey, man, we'd love to have you on if you're interested. And yeah. he... He was super interested. He's never really done a podcast before. So we got on the phone and talked about it a little bit. And uh, he's just a super nice dude. And I'm I'm looking forward to speaking with him and learning all about this world. He's going to tell us all about the company and meeting James and what it's like when they build cars. And as usual, we have opened it up to the patrons to ask him their very own questions. And they did that. So... If you're interested in the Patreon, it's dot com slash Metal Up Your Podcast. There's all sorts of different things over there, but one of them is you get to ask our guests questions, and that's going to happen today with Scott. Next week, we're having Jimmy, Lars' drum tech, on the show. Yeah, so that's going to be exciting. It's going to be pretty cool for patrons
2: to be able to ask him questions, Yeah, we've been too. wanting to have him on the show for a while, and it's finally working out, which is great. Uh, it'll be a really fun little uh, little journey down Lars' lane. Yeah, it's going to be nice. So you guys have that to look forward to next week.
3: Uh, in the news, so we have to address this. This, is, this broke yesterday, I think. Yeah. That two of the festival dates, the Columbus, Ohio Sonic Temple Festival and the Louisville, Kentucky louder and life festival, uh, Metallica has dropped out of those festivals, mm-hmm. and they've
2: to be replaced with uh, Tool and Red Hot Chili Peppers. Which, by the way, I mean not a bad trade. Not a bad trade. I mean, Metallica two nights, it would have been great, different sets, all that stuff. But since they're unable to do it, to be able to throw on two other giant bands is pretty rad.
3: And that, yeah, it is cool. So let's check this out. So this is the official statement from Metallica. Dear Meta- and this is from James himself. Dear yeah. Metallica family, pains me to write this, but I have to let you all know that I cannot make it to Sonic Temple in Columbus and Louder Than Life in Louisville this year. As part of my continuing effort to get and stay healthy, I have critical recovery events on those weekends that cannot be moved. I apologize to all of our fans who have bought tickets for these festivals. We're working with the festival promoters to provide for refunds or exchanges. My intent with this statement is saying I apologize to each one of you. The reality is that I've not prioritized my health in the past year of touring, and I now know that my mental health comes first. That might sound like a no-brainer for most of you, but I didn't want to let the Metallica team family down, and I alone completely compromised myself. Looking on the brighter side, my therapy's going well. It was absolutely necessary for me to look after my mental, physical, and spiritual health. I want to stress that the band will play all other announced 2020 shows. I'm looking forward to getting back to playing and seeing all of our great South American fans in April. And of course, playing Epicenter in Charlotte, Welcome to Rockville and Dayton, and Aftershock in Sacramento. We will still play two unique sets at each of these festivals. Beyond 2020, I'm optimistic about the blessings I've been given and what the future brings. I appreciate all the great prayers and support from everyone since I went into rehab last September. Like the moth into the flame, being human in this career has its huge challenges and can be difficult. Your understanding helps the healing, James.
2: I mean, what a great address to the fans. I think that he gives us more information than he has to. He absolutely does, I think. I mean, right. He, I mean, he specifies currently, like, you know, going through therapy and mental health and stuff like that, you know. So it could have been something last year where he wasn't falling back into the bottle. It's just maybe he was close and that affected his mental health. And that's what he got. That's why he got into right. rehab. But, uh, no, I think you're right. I think he, he definitely gave us more information than we even deserve. I mean So let's address this. So there are people
3: on the fucking internet who are upset who who can't understand it. So all right, here's one of the things people are saying. Why would they announce these shows when they knew he was in rehab? So let's address this. So this is a no brainer for me, you and I. Okay. So listen to me, people out there, good people out there. Here's and, how it and, works. And most most people understand this, but there are people who don't, and I want to help them understand. It's pretty simple. A festival of this size, these festivals, they're of a magnitude that they have been planned and booked at least a year in advance. Yeah. Now, what does this include? I don't know. Uh, that's even beyond the purview of me and Ethan, but it's something like this guarantees, mm-hmm. advanced deals, merch deal, all sorts of business deals. Yes. Is a festival gonna get a cut of their t shirts? I don't know. They probably work that out. Is Metallica gonna get a flat fee? Or is Metallica gonna get eighty percent of the gate? after a certain amount of tickets are sold, and then they're going to get 50% additional gate after that. Is there a bonus if they sell out? I don't know. And here's what that looks like working out. The promoter people call Metallica's people. Metallica's people get a contract. They talk to their lawyers. They amend contracts. They send the contracts back. Right. That
2: happens over and over for months and sometimes a whole year. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there, there's times where big festivals like this, when they end on a weekend... They the, already start the next, the next day. Year. The, yeah. Well, th- a lot of times they already announced the dates of the next right, year. Right, right. And at that point, they're already booking bands. They're already in, in contract negotiations with artists for that next year. Because an artist the size of Metallica, you can't just book them a month out and be like, hey, you want to play our festival, man? Right. It's just something like you just described. It has to go on for a long the time. The only
3: time that that happens is when something like, when a cancellation of this magnitude happens and a band they a band like Tool says, we'll headline. Yeah. Totally. So we'll, we'll basically do Metallica a favor. Yeah. And... They probably rush whatever the contracts are there, and same for the chili peppers, but that's pretty rare. That's an emergency. Yeah. Now, when Metallica was putting these festivals together, I don't think they knew James was going to go to fucking rehab. Right. That is what's called a life emergency that you literally cannot plan for. Yes. Can you plan for the wreck you might get into when you leave my house? No. because no, you don't know if it's going to happen. It's an exactly. emergency that happens.
2: Right. Now, announcing them after he went to rehab, I'm not saying that anyone that's angry about it is justified. But that's also kind of a you know they're so far out from that time he went to rehab. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's the safe bet to say, okay, let's just announce these. Right. These are eight months away, exactly. or whatever. You know, um, but again, with James's health being the most important thing, you can't factor in specifics in re- regards to his recovery. Right. Where you know, and the recovery world, man, is I- I've never been in it, but I have a lot of friends that have, and I know you have you have too. Mm-hmm. The recovery process is not something to be taken casually. Right. When there's things that you have to be at. Well, it's life and death. And it's not a, when he talks about uh, recovery events, it's not like he's making an appearance at a recovery event. Who knows what that is, but what he means yeah. is it's a very serious, maybe it's a weekend back at the facility. Right, yeah. Maybe it's a retreat for recovering alcoholics or whatever it was. It's not a special event like the like, like the Reclaiming Wrestling where it's like, and our guest speaker, James Hetfield. This isn't something that he like booked, you yeah, know. Yeah, correct. And, it, and, and for them to walk away from these contracts to me is common
3: sense evidence that it, It really is something that he cannot not do. Yes. Now, they continue to announce the dates, even though James was in rehab, because these things were were booked in advance, Mm -hmm. and it made sense, logically, as a business move, to go ahead and assume that between September of 2019 and summer of 2020,
2: that James would be out of rehab. Well, and also, Metallica's not the only band playing. So they have to announce these things. And so it it
3: was a smart business decision and someone wrote today on Twitter. Well, obviously it wasn't because they've canceled two
2: of them. Well, they're still doing the other three. Yeah, they're still doing the three and those those festivals are still happening. It's not like this is a Metallica one night only, an evening with Metallica show where they could say, hey, let's wait on announcing this and see how James is doing. It's not just Metallica fans that are are you know not going to see their favorite band, but like there's, there's what twenty other bands on this bill. Yeah, I, I, it's not just about Metallica at the end of the day. I there's, guess
3: what some of these people are saying is they should have just canceled everything if they didn't know, and that makes no business sense. No, because let's say that that James gets out of rehab and there are no. Recovery events to attend. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to play all the festivals. And
2: they're they're, they're going to honor all the contracts and they're going to make millions of dollars. Right. When he got in rehab, they, they, you know, him, management, maybe Lars, whoever. I'm sure they sat down and said, "Okay, let's look at the schedule. How's this looking to you?" Because, you know, they have to be sensitive to James's needs and in, and in, in getting healthy. And they're looking at the schedule, and he's looking at his his uh, recovery schedule, saying, "Shoot, like I have to do these things. Mm-hmm. We have to back out of this and this." And look, I get it. Fans
3: are disappointed. Those were the two festival dates I was going to go to. Yeah, so that's out for me. I'm not going to Sacramento. I was planning on like trying to get to those if I wasn't on the road. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so I, I understand. I'm disappointed. Everyone's disappointed. I guarantee you, the other guys in the band are kind of disappointed. And I guarantee
2: you, the promoter is disappointed, and their management. I guarantee you, you're not the only one disappointed. Do you know who probably is the most disappointed? Is James Hetfield? Well, I don't. I don't think he was like sitting there doing a a hole in one golf. What do you call that thing? You get a hole in I one and you like pull a, your arm in like, like a, Tiger Woods. Or like yeah. when Lars gets off the drum kit. Yeah, I don't think James is going, awesome, I don't have to play those dumb course festivals. Of course he wasn't. No. Of course he wasn't. And No, that, he, he's probably let down, feels let down the most. Like, I, I hate that I have to do this. And I think that's very evident and very specific in his letter to the fans that he was posted yesterday.
3: I think, I think it's all real clear. It's disappointing, but it's real clear what's going on. Yeah. And it's for his health. And this shit is life and death. Yes. Okay. People who are addicts. They're going to do what they're doing until they die. Yeah. That, that's why they get help. If you're an alcoholic, unless you get help, you are going to drink until you die. Mm-hmm. That's what happens.
2: Yes. Now there are some people that, that uh, you know maybe uh, went through alcoholism or drug abuse or whatever that somehow miraculously get out of it on their own, don't go to recovery, and they never touch a thing again. I have some friends that are like that. They, not even the thought crosses their mind, you know. Um, but well, one, would, one some, would argue that they may not actually be alcoholics. Maybe so. But a guy like James, I mean, it's, it's, it's rare. It's really rare that you yeah. can just stop doing it
3: when you have a disease. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a disease. Yeah. So be disappointed. That's fine. But the willful ignorance of like not understanding. But why are they booking the festivals? It's like, dude, you don't get it. That's not how it works. Yeah. You don't get it. And then I, and then it's like I'm the jerk, for being like, no, you don't get it. Let me explain it to you again. And then after the fifth time. I put my hands up and I'm like, dude, I can't explain this to you. I don't know what to tell you anymore. And then, and then, Clint's the big butthole. And then, someone's going to leave us a fucking one star review because I don't suffer fools. And I get, I don't know if you were like this, but like for me coming up in the music industry, I was always the younger guy in the band mm -hmm. where I learned real quick by being around older, smarter people. Maybe, maybe try and listen and learn. Because people didn't suffer fools around me, man, and I and not, I was I the fool for a long time. I yeah, was the same. I was a little kid who who had a lot of bravado and a lot of opinion and this and that. Yeah. And I had a lot of dudes a little
2: older than me being yeah. like, "Hey, no, man, no, dude. hey, man, slow your roll." Just listen for a minute. Yeah. That's I mean that's one of the best things you can do in any phase of life is just shut your mouth and listen, and not and I'm saying shut your mouth and like you. Well, no, no, and they never said that, and that's not what I, I'm not telling
3: anyone to shut their mouth. Yeah. But I am saying like, look. And this one guy was like, "Why are you trying to fight with me?" I'm like, "Dude, I'm the one trying to help you, bro." There were other people jumping in on this combo that were being a little more heated yeah, I than me. Through it. And I was like, "Look, I'm the one trying to give you the information, but you are just committed
2: to being upset. Like you just want to be upset." The same thing happened when they canceled Australia and New Zealand. Right. People choose to remain upset in those situations and not maybe take a step back and look at the bigger picture and what all goes on with this whole thing. I think what James posted was more than specific. I agree. More information than we needed. And I, I don't understand. I, I, It doesn't compute with me that someone doesn't understand this situation and, and how severe it is. And and look, if they were in negotiations for these festivals and James went into rehab, guess what? They probably wouldn't have booked them. They, of course, wouldn't have. No. So
3: I'm willing to explain things and have a dialogue. And I also, listen to me, I understand that people are frustrated. So it's nothing to do with that. I'm not saying that your disappointment's invalid. But when you constantly aren't understanding the problem, mm-hmm. and you
2: just want to be a little outraged keyboard warrior,
3: then yeah. I'm losing patience for that.
2: Yeah, and, and honestly, I, th- I mean, I think there's a, a bit of selfishness with with being frustrated with that it, it, in this kind of situation, where where it is a matter of, of someone's life. Feel your feel your feelings, get frustrated, feel disappointed, and move right. on. But if you know if your favorite band was coming to Nashville and they canceled the day before because the singer was being a fucking idiot the night before and went out drinking too late and couldn't sing. Be frustrated, because that's a dick move on his part. Sure. This is this is not even close to that. Well, this is mental health. Exactly. This
3: is, and, and as I've said a few times, and I don't want to gloss over it, because I really mean this, this is life and death. Yes. So we're just going to leave that at that. And some more pleasant news. Today, as of the taping of this episode- On tape. Because we use two-inch tape here at HQ2, Kirk is playing at the Peter Green Tribute at the London Palladium curated by Mick Fleetwood, who's also the co-founder. Now, this is the original Fleetwood Mac. This is before Lindsey Buckingham and before Stevie Nicks. So this was when they were a British blues band. And they were badass. And that's Peter Green is the original owner of Kirk's Greenie Les Paul, which is why he's there. So it's curated by Mick Fleetwood, features appearances by Billy Gibbons, David Gilmore, which I've posted a picture of Kirk with David Gilmore. How right? is that? Oh, two of my favorites together. Right when I walked in, I saw your Gilmore record on the end of your record collection, man. Johnny Lang's going to be there, Andy Fairweather, John Mayle, Christy McVie, of course, of OG Fleetwood Mac, Zach Starkey, Ringo Sun, Steven Tyler, and Bill Wyman. So that's happening today, so I'm sure we'll be getting reports that's about... a cool stacked lineup, man. I'm sure we'll be getting... We'll see what songs they played, and maybe we'll yeah. play some of it on a, on a future episode. Uh,
2: speaking of Greeny, so um, I just finished, by the way, my uh, my time with Brandy Carlisle yesterday. Nice. Flew- Congratulations. Thank you. It was like a bummer to leave, for sure. I'm going back to King's Tech, but... Uh, it was a bummer to take off and to say bye to everybody, but you know whatever I'll, you know there's no goodbyes in this business as we know it's only I'll see you later, gotcha as they someone says um however, uh one of uh, Brandy's new tech um this guy named Dan he's Jack White's main tech usually okay, and so we were talking about Metallica one day and I told him about the podcast and stuff and he and uh, we were talking about greenie. he goes, man, I got to play Greenie hmm. I was like really and so the last time the rock and tours this last year played down in Hawaii um Kirk Hammett came to the show and brought Greenie with him. Wow! He wanted Jack to check it out. Wow! And he like handed it to Jack's tech, this guy Dan, who's awesome, and just like, hey, I'm gonna go grab some food. Like, just left it with them. Mm-hmm. And that's rare because he he has it with them all, at all times. He immediately went to eBay. Went to eBay. It's on there now. For bidding starts at twenty dollars. Uh, Jack White I guess played it and was like, wow, this is amazing. Wow! We asked Kirk if I could play it tonight for one song. What? Yeah. And, and so, he did. Yeah. He walked over to Kirk and said, is it cool? If Jack, you know. Jack wants to play it for a song. He's like, absolutely, man, go for it.
3: I cannot imagine Kirk
2: being particular about that. He takes it everywhere he goes. He takes it everywhere he goes. And he was on stage watching him the whole time. Yeah. But like, yeah, Jack White got to play Greenie for one song. Wow. And uh, and Kirk was just excited that someone else is, I mean, a guitar like that, you're excited when someone else gets to experience the oh, joy yeah. of playing that instrument.
3: Well, then it's taken on such a mythological thing because so many great guitar players have played it. Yeah. You know Kirk being the the next in line, it'll get passed on to somebody else too. And you know what's really cool about him posing with so the picture of him with Gilmore is Gilmore holding Greenie, and Kirk's kind of next to him with a big shooting grin on his face because it's it's you know. And Kirk was really humble about it because Kirk is obviously a metal legend, a living legend, of course, no doubt about it. Yeah, but even Kirk standing next to David Gilmore, he recognizes that like, whoa, this is like definitely another living. legend. This is David Gilmore holding Greenie and it made me think of you know i don't know if you were hip to this but last year david gilmour sold yeah almost all of his guitars a ton of stuff like all the stuff he wrote all that shit with famous black strat like all of them yeah. and he he donated it all to charity yeah and if you guys are at all interested in that there was a podcast that came out that just sort of it was like supplementary to the auction. Oh, cool! It's a big, it's about four or five episodes where he just talks about some of these guitars. David Gilmore does. Yeah, oh, I, I, I it's only know. about four. If you just look up David Gilmore in the podcast thing, it'll come up. It's I didn't called, even know that existed. It's called like David Gilmore Guitars. Hell yeah! And it's him talking about some of those Strats. He's got the the Martin acoustic that he wrote "Wish You Were Here" on.
2: Gosh, that's crazy! And it's
3: just so cool. First of all, this dude is a fucking A one humanitarian. Yeah, he's they've given so much money to charities all over the world, and he donated all this money to charity. But to hear him talk about the guitars in a way that was really refreshing because he wasn't like, he wasn't really sentimental about it. Yeah, which is crazy. He was like, for... these are tools, yeah. and they allowed me to do this work that a lot of people really like, and now I'm happy to send them back out into the world. Crazy. And he even said like, he's like, you know, what's unfortunate is that a lot of like collectors and like rich people are gonna buy these, sure. and it's for charities, which is good. He's like, but what I would really love as if a real player got a hold of them and yeah. and some
2: songs came out of them. Not him. some like doctor that's going to Well, that they
3: you. wouldn't go sit in glass somewhere. Yeah. That they'd be played. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, what a cool... And Kirk seems to have that ethos about Greenie because he play, he takes it all over the world. He takes it all over the world. And he's like, look, this thing's made to be played. Same thing with James
2: in that uh, 58 uh, Explorer. The, yeah. The Korean Explorer. Yeah, he's got a couple of those crazy karinas yeah. that they play. And there's and are there's not a lot of those out there. Right. You know, right. I think there's like maybe 50 or 100 of those explorers.
3: Well, yeah. we'll we'll keep abreast of the Peter Green gig and and uh, hopefully be letting our fans know about what's going on with that. But it seems really cool and it's just a nice positive thing going on during kind of this tumultuous time. Uh, I mentioned the Patreon earlier. Go check it out. Go get involved. It's real cool over there. There's lots of uh, different perks over there. One of them being that we're going to open. We're opening the Metal Tales back up. Yeah. So with the South American dates coming up, people are going to be claiming those. And then plus, uh, we've got a whole backlog of p- former shows. So yeah. if you want to come on the show and be an ambassador for a show you went to, go check out Patreon. Get on the Metal Tales. We get emails every week. We're going to read five right now to check in on the Metal Up Your Podcast family. And what we lovingly refer to as
2: the Email Portal. <laughs> Our first email is from Brandon Smith. He says, hey guys, just started listening to your podcast and I love every second of it. That was in all caps. I'm a 22-year-old fan from Buffalo, New York, and I've been a fan for about 10 years. Uh, If you'd ever like to hear from uh, the perspective of a young fan, I'd love to call and chat. Uh, I've had three interactions with all four members uh, of the band, mostly Lars and James. I've seen them six times, three times front row. Nice. That's awesome, man. Thanks, Brandon, for the email. And uh, Yeah, it's so cool to see... uh, younger generations get into the band. I mean, that's going to keep happening even after Metallica's gone.
3: Yeah, totally. Well, their music is that powerful. Yeah. And Brandon, if you want to come on the show and talk about your experiences, go check out that Patreon, homie. We'd love to hear from you. Lou Delia writes in, who, by the way, sent us a care package yesterday. I saw that, yeah. Filled with so what uh, issues and stickers and a book and yeah. just lovely. We have lovely listeners out there that send us stuff. They're lovely. They're lovely, charming. They're brilliant. Charmed, lovely. I'm sure. Charmed. <laughs> Lou writes, love the show, especially this week's episode with Clint and his buddy talking about last week, me talking to my. Longest running friend of 30 years, Aaron Schaefer. He says, it really took me back to that time. Such a great era to grow up in. One thing it got me thinking about was how crazy concert ticket prices have gotten over the last 10 years or so. I know this is a byproduct of nobody buying music anymore, but it seems out of control. In my late teens and early 20s, I'd go to 15 to 20 shows a year. I can't see how anyone in their 20s could afford to do that now. I have some friends that bought tickets to see Rage at Madison Square Garden and paid over 300 bucks a ticket to sit upstairs, and that's from the regular, t- regular Ticketmaster site, not StubHub. Which we need to talk about that for a second. Yeah. There's some controversy that we need to clear up also about Rage Tickets. Now, Rage Tickets are capped at $125. Yeah. Okay? That is the most expensive ticket they're selling, except for anything above that is for charity. Yes. Okay? So there's been a lot of confusion. Because here's here's what's happening. They, they're, they're getting shit on, for sure. Well, here's what's happening. The tour sold out. Because it's Rage Against the Machine. Yes. And they haven't toured in forever. So the tour sold out. Now they have these tickets at a certain cap that go to charity. Yes, they're not going to rage against the machine. Right. So it's not them being greedy, because uh, I've just seen them getting shit. Like Hell, uh, this is the band that was like, take the power back and fight the people. Yeah. But they're charging three hundred fifty dollars for a man yeah. square garden.
2: Okay, dude, that's for charity. Yeah. Tom Morello got on Twitter and tried to address as much as he could. I'm sure that's really well. Really how can you talk to people who don't who aren't interested in fucking facts? Right. Yeah. How can you reason? Yeah. You can't.
3: And I'm not saying lose one of these people. I'm just saying I'm just so tired of the fucking internet outrage. Yeah. Everyone needs to calm down. Everyone just chill out. And read the fucking small print. Yeah. And assimilate the information. Yes. Okay, so we're done. That's for Rage. Okay. I remember telling myself I'd never pay more than 100 bucks to see a band, but now that seems to be the norm. I know bands need to make money with record sales being in the toilets. Tickets and merch are their only source of income. For me personally, it's really limited my ability to see some great bands. I'd love to see Megadeth, but I'm not paying 150 bucks to hear Dawn Patrol. We end our lives as pre-recorded morals, he says. Anyway, just wanted to get you guys' opinion on the matter, seeing as you're both in the biz. Thanks again for the great content. Metal Up, Lou from Parsippany, New Jersey, New Jersey. Yeah,
2: I mean, unfortunately, too, I'll end on this, I guess, is there's always going to be scalpers. There's ways, where, like when Metallica did at Night 2 of sm 2, where it was fan club only. It was probably really tough for scalpers to get a hold of those without having to go on there, sign up, and do all that stuff. I think what he's talking about, though, is that even without that, tickets are expensive. No, they are. They've gotten way more expensive. I mean, I used to see arena shows for 30 bucks.
3: And that's honestly, yeah. I mean, it's partly because record sales are gone. Yeah. And that revenue's got to be made up. But part of it, too, is that I think that a lot of promoters and bands and artists undervalue tickets for a long time. Because Mm. here's the deal. They're more expensive than ever, but they're selling more than ever. Right. The live music revenue keeps going up every year. It's a billion dollar industry
2: and people, whatever these prices are, people are paying them. They are, That's why they're that expensive. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, imagine like in the 80s, like when, let's say tickets to an arena show were 20 bucks. Right. I'm sure there there were guys, you know, that were going to shows in the 70s, like, man, when I was going to shows, you could go see Hendrix for six bucks or whatever. (laughs) That stuff always increases. And that's just inflation.
3: So that's normal. But this is even different though. I think this is like Ticketmaster and artists are saying, well, what if we, if Pearl Jam normally charges, like Pearl Jam tickets are like 150 bucks across the board. Yeah. Every Pearl Jam ticket's 150 bucks. That's pretty wild, right? That's real wild. I mean, is that a way to combat it, it's scalpers? A, it's a way to mitigate how people fuck with the system. Yeah. So they basically said, look, all the tickets are one price and
2: we'll let you know where the seat is. You know would be cool is if this, if a band just tried to do it the old school way and just do like, you know, paper tickets. like, You got to go down to whatever record store when they go on sale. And when I first saw Rage, that's how I had to do it. Right. I mean, there was Ticketmaster, but it wasn't an online thing. This is 1996. Well, just people imagine the outrage. I mean, just outrage culture
3: would shit a fucking brick. Oh, yeah. Uh, Aaron and I, on the last episode, revisited the Georgia Dome show where James didn't show up. Right. And I'd forgotten about how we knew about the makeup show. And I went and found the Georgia Dome show where Lars came out, Um, listen up, Atlanta, listen up. And yeah. he basically tells everybody James is going to be there. It was really weird watching this video, yeah. knowing that, <laughs> seven, that I'm there. 17 years old there. But what he says is he's like, hold on your fucking ticket stub, because that's the only way you're getting into the makeup show. Yeah. You had to keep your stub. Awesome. Can you imagine 35,000 people doing that 35, correctly stubs. now? <laughs> yeah, huh? No.
2: What? Well, what I, do you mean? I don't remember him saying that.
3: You know what we did? We just were like, oh, okay, and kept them. Just throw in your wallet. And that's what we showed the people at Lakewood Amphitheater a month later. Yeah. And that's how we got in. Yeah. Tickets are more expensive
2: because that's in the marketplace. That's what people are willing to pay. Right. Uh, yeah. It's basically supply and demand. Same thing goes in the vinyl industry right now. 15 to 20 years ago, I was buying brand new records from Tower or whatever record store in town for $12 to $15 because mm-hmm. that was the market value. Right. Now a brand, a brand new uh, record on vinyl is going to be around 20 to 30 bucks depending on what you're getting. Right. Maybe more if it's a double record. Right. That's just you know supply and demand. And also uh, due to
3: technology, production value of shows has gotten a lot higher. Way
2: higher. I mean, a
3: bit, to go see to go see Kiss is a really bad example because they're the ones who basically invented the modern yeah. crazy show. No one did that before them. Yeah. But if you were to go see, I don't know, fucking Bad Company in the 70s, you're going to see Five Guys in Jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah, and some speakers. And maybe some fog. Yeah. If you go see Pink now, uh, which I saw, the show opens with her swinging from a giant chandelier all the way across the arena. And then every song after that, a new crazy thing happens. Thanks, Garth Brooks. So, I mean, it's expensive, but if you watch, go watch fucking U2 and they're in the middle of an arena with a huge, crazy screen you see through, doing, doing futuristic Minority Report shit. Yeah. So part of it's going. I mean, look at those big ass screens on the Hardwired tour. Look oh at my those God, cubes. Yeah. Look at look at all the value. I'm not saying that justifies it, and and let me be clear about one thing. I can't afford this shit. Right. Same. I don't go see any shows. Same. Yeah. We go to Metallica shows because we have access to Metallica shows. Yeah. But I I can't go see you two. No. I can't go see Paul McCartney. No. Um but I recognize that people are willing to pay what they're charging. They are, yeah. And and here's what no one in business is doing, going, eh, we could make more money, but let's not. Yeah. No fucking way. No. That's just not happening. If there's the demand for it, you, you take advantage. Not take advantage of it, but you, you, you Well, you just act on it. Yeah, you totally act on it. So I agree with Lou man. It's I don't know how people are it's a, it's a real shame because I don't know how young people especially who don't have much money. Right. We don't have much money cuz we're old
2: but we're in the music industry. We we fucked up. Well, by. we're also in the music industry which sometimes obviously has its perks. Sure. Getting into shows, playing festivals, getting to go see other bands play. But most of our peers at our age are in established careers and yes. they they can go see Paul McCartney right. for 500 bucks when he rolls around. Uh, but shoot, I mean if my But kids can't. If my niece and nephew want to go see a, an arena show that came here cuz they just moved here and like hey uncle Lee, can you take us to this and i didn't have a hookup like i'm sorry i can't because just the three of us alone right. it's gonna be 450 well, bucks. Po- yeah
3: post malone which whose most fans are kids 130 bucks a ticket Jeez, what the fuck yeah. are they supposed to do yeah it's a problem i mean it's gonna we're gonna have to just see what happens but i don't see the trend slowing because i'll tell you what will happen i'll tell you when they'll start getting cheaper when people quit buying the tickets of course and, yeah. and not only is that not happening people are willing to shell out all this money right
2: so everyone's just making money yeah Alright, thanks for the question, Lou. Alright, next email's from Michael Wolf. He says, First off, you guys are great and and so is the podcast. Thank you. Us and the podcast what? are great. What? <laughs> Two things? Neat. Wow. Uh, the best comment I ever read about load and reload is to think about it as modern day Black Sabbath. Also, Ronnie's one of my favorite uh, one of my uh, favorite songs ever. Love the podcast. I can't get enough. You guys seem like very genuine guys, and I think that's a big reason the podcast is so good. Rock on, metal up your ass.
3: I can't get enough of your
1: pod. <laughs>
2: Uh, I could, yeah, I could kind of hear a Black Sabbath comparison if you, uh, kind of more modern Black Sabbath records, but yeah, Sa- like Sabbath was technically still making records in the nineties. So think about
3: uh, yeah, who cares about those? They're not great. Think about uh, the swagger of the memory remains. Hmm. A lot of Sabbath-y. Sabbathy. Oh yeah, for sure. I can see that it's sort of slower, heavy. Like Devil's Dance. Yeah, I, mean, and, I mean, there's no doubt that they're influenced by Sabbath totally. on those records. Yeah, absolutely. Donovan Soroson writes, Gentlemen.
2: Gentlemen. Just
3: discovered your show. I've been checking out multiple casts, the most recent being about Jason and the Chop House band. There's been one thing that gets me every time you talk about his post-Metallica projects, you keep forgetting Papa Wheelie, which I had never heard of. You ever Is heard that, of this? No, I All right, not. check this out. He says, maybe you, maybe you guys know about this band, maybe you don't. Jason, Joe Ledesma, and Steve Wig, they put out two albums, Unicycle." and Live Lycanthropy, both of which are amazing in, in my very humble opinion. So I looked into this. So Jason had a bunch of side projects yeah. through the Chop House. We're going to end up doing a whole episode on this, because I found an old Chop House website that's not active anywhere, but someone took a bunch of screenshots of oh, okay. it. okay. And you can preserve websites in that way. Right. I feel like I'm just discovering the internet or something. But <laughs> He had a bunch of side projects, Papa Wheelie being one of them. They have two albums. They've only played a couple of shows. Yeah. But we're going to find all this music. He had some side projects with the Sepultura guys. Papa Wheelie. So it's Papa Wheelie. So apparently it's Pop, he, a Wheelie. But it's Papa Wheelie. I know. So <laughs> it's the a bike store owner, and Jason started this band. Right. So Unicycle is one Unicyco, of the Unicycle. So it's Papa sort of wheelie. puns of yeah, bikes. Yeah, totally. He says the last time the band played big was the 2011 Bar and Grill tour. Jason's words, not mine. Started at the Pine St. Bar and Grill and ended at the Regency Ballroom opening for Caius Lives. Which Kaius lives is um, Queens of the Stone Age guys. A- Stone Age guys. Kaius was, band. yeah, yeah. Josh Homie's first man. Jason was gracious enough to let me hang out, tag along, whatever you'd like to call it, every weekend for two months filming the shows. He had me back to film a couple of Newstead shows and a Chop House band show in Napa, circa 2016. This is something I've shared with a lot of people only because I respect the man and I don't want to try and trade on his name. The experiences are also something I'll never forget. I share this with you because you were just as fanatical about Metallica as I am, and I figure you'd appreciate the story. Thank you. And I do, Donovan. And uh PS, don't read this on the podcast. Too much information. <laughs> oh shit. Here's shoot. Jason's here's Jason Newstead's personal address. PS. Here's uh, his social security number. Uh we're gonna cover I'm gonna do a deep dive research into all this chop house stuff and we're gonna cover it. So that's gonna be fun. We're gonna listen to all this music yeah, and Chop House episode It'd be fun. Check it out. We're gonna chop it out. Chop it out. Like chopaholics. Chop-a- we're gonna, you know what? Put it this way. Let's go chopping. What do you chopping? Get to the chopper. Get to the. It's not a tumor. <laughs> I'm combining what kindergarten cop and true lies or something. What's uh, good to the chopper? Is that Predator?
2: I think it was Predator. I believe so. Remember true lies though? Oh, Michael yeah. Bay, Jamie Lee Curtis. Tom Arnold. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, Bill, Bill Paxton. That was a great movie. Listen, man, '80s, '90s Schwarzenegger action flicks. Yeah, I'm in. I'm into. Totally. I in. could.
3: I could take a fucking the eraser. I could take a t- a, a test on those. Yeah, the Eraser's eraser is a good one. That's '90s. Commando. Commando. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to go all the way back to Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Destroyer as well. Uh, Running Man. Oh, Running Man. Like a Total Recall. For me, it's for me, it's late '80s, early '90s. Yeah. So you want to throw in a little kindergarten
2: cop, little twins. Mm, Twins. Yeah. Take out the papers and the trash. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard music like this before. Yakety yak! Don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got a few more emails. Uh, we have one more. Uh, Stan Pro writes, "Hey guys, hope so your day has been good. It has. It has so far." Thank you, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to thank you guys for getting me through another root canal earlier today. Hey, we've we've gotten a lot of people through horrible dentist visits. That's awesome. Hey, great. Maybe I'll listen to one of our episodes <laughs> during my next teeth cleaning. Uh, you were the anesthesia that pulled my teeth <laughs> keeping me entertained and distracted from shall we say the thorns within mm, nice the classic album's metallic episode was uh, f- fun to keep my mind off things but probably also dangerous to be laughing at your Walmart gift card jokes <laughs> with a drill in my mouth <laughs> anyways love you guys Ethan let's go see Megadeth this summer from Lunar Stan uh, I would love to see them they're coming here I can't remember the date I might be gone but where are they playing Bridgestone oh really well, it's Megadeth, Lamb of God. It would shock me if it was Bridgestone. It's in Flames and Lamb of God and Megadeth. Yeah, it's pr- it's probably a, a municipal. Still a good-sized place.
3: I'll tell you what, if they were doing the actual Dawn Patrol live, they might sell some more tickets. Yeah, but without, in, without the tape? But it said it's a pre-recorded tape. Dude, someone on Twitter, I, I I feel like I'm just bitchy McBitch sauce today, which is fine, <laughs> but someone on Twitter was like, I was making fun of uh, the Dawn Patrol pre-recorded tape, right? and someone was like, well, what's the difference between that and the the kid sang The Prayer on Inner Sandman. Well, we don't have the kid there. I'm like, you need me to explain the difference of them playing the tape of the kid saying The Prayer on Inner Sandman and Dave playing a tape of his lead vocal while he's there. It's a pretty easy difference. It's pretty it's, clear to me. I think it's Chris, Chris Why can't he just get up there and say, we end our lives as fucking moles? End our lives as moles. He didn't even say it like that. We end our
2: lives as, as moles. Epitaph moles. As I read my epitaph. <laughs> Only, I mean, in regards to that, the only reason I could see him doing the tape thing is just for, like, a vocal break. Yeah. You know? And that's cool. I don't care.
3: I don't care. But, but if
2: they're going to play Dawn Patrol live...
3: Come on! You're playing Dawn Patrol. I'm I'm not kidding when I tell you this. I'm not joking. It's my favorite Megadeth song. I know it is. So, you know, <laughs> come on, man.
1: <laughs> and it's,
3: like, it's not that big of a strain on the voice. All he has to do is talk, like, in a weird
2: British... Epitaph. I'm Michael Caine. <laughs> I'll read my Michael epitaph Caine as I read my epitaph. She was only 16 years old. <laughs> my name is Michael Caine. I was just listening to Conan O'Brien's podcast, he you had know, Dana Carvey on. Yeah, he's such a good impressionist, and he does a great Michael Caine. What's his Michael Caine like? You know, I, I can't do an impression of Dana Carvey. doing an impression. He does a great
3: one of Jeff Bridges, where he talks about how Jeff Bridges always sounds like he's chewing food. <laughs> yeah. Well. That's great. We'll
2: do that. <laughs> we should do that. <laughs> there was a great bit between him and Conan, and Conan's impressions are not good. Where, where they do Lennon McCartney? Yes. Oh, so good. You guys oh got to go check that gosh. out. Gosh. He, he does this. There's a six or seven part series on yeah. Conan's podcast, like 30 minutes each with Justina Carvey, and the. Yeah, the Lennon McCartney thing where he's talking to him from beyond the grave to explaining what iPhones yeah. are and who Kim Kardashian is. Oh, it's, it's an iPhone, Paul. It's like, it's like. Well, yeah, you know, you put. Oh, you, <laughs> <laughs> this Paul so funny, dude. It's like, oh, well, you know, uh, you, you know, uh, Johnny, it's like a little uh, television set you put in your pocket. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, as you do, you know, you put it in your pocket and you uh, see the orange man. What well, do you mean, the orange yeah. man? Well, 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 his face is a bit orange, you know, and it's, it's a bit red, you know. It's like his
2: hair is it's a bit strange. and You put it in your pocket. A little gibbly gobbly goo, yeah. right, John? What well, do you mean, Paul? When he goes into the whole thing about how he underplays, the, like, how huge Beatles songs are, and then we had this little tune called She Loves You. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a little, little number. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, I'm in a row yesterday And you know, really, it was about, you know, scrambled eggs And it came to me in a dream yeah. And I am putting in my pocket, and I get a little gobbledygook <laughs> you know, It says, well, put a little piddly poo in my pocket Oh, it's great, Dinner Carby is so good Well, before we just turn this straight into a, An impressions podcast, let's get out of here and, and talk to Scott Muckford about some of these Custom cars, what do you Apparently, say? Let's do
2: it Alright, please, bye <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Ethan and Clint. We're here to tell you about supporting the show via Patreon.
3: That's right. Every week, Ethan and I work hard to bring you the best Metallica content possible. If you think the show has value, consider supporting us on a financial level at Patreon.
2: For $5 a month, or the price of two cups of coffee, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. But that's not all.
3: In addition to being able to help sleep at night for supporting your favorite podcast, we've also come up with incentives to say thank you that are exclusively available to patrons. For example, for a pledge of $5 or more, you immediately get free downloads of every cover our world blackened ep
2: ticket giveaways for shows like snm2 and slain castle
3: box sets
2: rare vinyl metallica memorabilia like snm2 guitar picks email priority meaning we'll read your email first on the show with a chance to ask guests like Hailstorm, jay weinberg of slipknot and metallica row crew your very own questions
3: and the opportunity to come on the show as a guest for our metal tales bonus episodes in which you can tell us all about any Metallica show you've been to in the past.
2: All this and more for becoming a patron and supporting Metal Up Your Podcast. We couldn't do this show without you, and to everyone on the ride with us, we sincerely thank you. Peace. Adios.
1: (laughs) Adios.
3: All right, for those of you who don't know, Blue Collar Customs is based in Sacramento, California. It's a traditional rod and custom specialist shop specializing in chopper, air ride, chopping, air ride, custom fabrication, and metalwork. You can find them and Scott on Facebook, Instagram, and bluecollarcustoms.com. As we mentioned before, two of Scott's custom builds are now available in the Reclaimed Rust exhibit at the Peterson Museum, the Straight Edge F100 and the 1936 Ford Iron Fist. And we're going to hear now from my friend Scott and learn all about the wonderful world of custom cars. Yes. Ooh, All right, so we're here with Scott Mugford from Blue Collar Customs, all the way from Sacramento, California. How you doing,
0: Scott? Pretty good this morning. How you guys doing?
2: Doing good, man. Hey, listen, it's nice to talk to another native Californian. I'm, uh, I'm originally from Long Beach.
0: Oh, that's cool. I was actually uh, born in Glendale. Oh, nice. But, uh, but when I was a kid, we moved up to Sacramento.
2: Yeah, man. And Sacramento, uh, has it, my last few times touring through there, has gotten way, way cooler than it used to be in the, uh, in the 90s. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, like, I lived a, like a skateboarding life through the 90s, so Sacramento was kind of a cool spot for that kind of stuff in the 90s, but, like, for culture or anything else, you know, it was yeah, kind of a hick town a little bit.
3: Yeah, absolutely, man. So, Scott, you work for Blue Collar Customs. Now, is that a company that you started, or do you just work there, or what's the deal with that?
0: Basically, my friend uh, Rob Cannon and another friend, Phil Cannon, that doesn't work with us anymore, started it originally about 18 years ago rob's actually one of my good friends from high school we uh had auto shop together and then worked at a restaurant when we were kids together and you know we just kind of known each other since we were 15 and uh it all kind of built into this
3: and what got you into building custom cars cars is that is that something you started doing young is it something your parents did tell us how you got started doing that kind of work
0: Well, I didn't have any family background in it, but I just always wanted to have kind of the coolest car. And uh, the only way to do it, in my mind, was to figure out how to build it. I couldn't afford to pay somebody to do it. Right. My first car was a 1953 Ford when I was like 15 years old. Wow. I lowered it and had wide, wide walls on it. And it was, I mean, it was pretty terrible. It was a four-door, you know, it always broke down, but it got (laughs) us there.
2: Yeah, man. Well, and that's, I mean, that's also kind of a rare thing to, to, to get into at such a young age too. I mean, when you're 15, 16 years old, getting your license and stuff, a lot of us just want any car with wheels that'll you know get us away from our parents. So yeah, to get into something that specific is pretty cool. I, I never was able to go down that road of like building my own stuff or even repairing my own stuff, but I had a 65 Mustang at one point. And, uh, but it is a lot more common out in California to, to if you're into cars at all, to go down that, ro- that road.
0: Well, and I kind of just fell into that car because uh, my mom made a deal with me that she'd match whatever I saved up, and being the genius that I was, I saved up $250, and she matched it, and that's what a $500 car was back then.
2: Yeah, man.
3: My first car was a 1986 Chevy Nova, (laughs) which which wasn't cool. The 80s Chevys were pretty uncool. And it didn't even have a tape player. That's how shitty it was. But I don't know if you can relate to this, Scott, but for, for me being an Alabama kid, just having my own car where I could go wherever I wanted, could go to, like the, the sort of symbolic freedom that it represented for me was all I needed, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, you know, it's kind of interesting that it isn't that anymore for, you know, generations coming up. But uh, yeah, I mean, the day I turned 16, at 9 a.m., I was at the DMV, Got my license and told my mom I was going to drive to school and never did. Cut the whole day and went out driving. Exactly.
2: I literally was just in a a discussion with my 15-year-old niece last night about this exact thing. Because she's looking online at like $20,000 cars for her first car and stuff. And I had to explain to her like, okay, mine first was a a 83 Ford Econoline stick shift van. (laughs) Like... You take what you can get because the symbolic that freedom is all you really need uh, initially. But for you, it was obviously something different. You know, you you latched on to, to you know a classic car.
3: Were your other buddies at that time interested in the same stuff? Was it sort of part of a group culture for you?
0: No, it's kind of interesting. Like I was, I was into skateboarding. Like skateboarding was really big in the in the eighties and the early nineties. And uh, it's weird that a lot of my friends that like were you know, sponsored or pro skateboarders back then are now, you know, big car people like still building cars. And, you know, we didn't really realize at the time, you know, but we were all super mechanical and it all kind of evolved into this super cool thing for us.
3: It's interesting hear you talk about it that way. It's making me think of Eddie Van Halen, for example, or Brian May, who are these really innovative guitar players, as we all know, A lot of what was so cool and unique about them, and I think this definitely ties into the work you've been doing, especially with James, is that they built what they needed out of necessity. Like you said, the car that you wanted didn't really exist. So you kind of saw it in your head and the only way to get it was to build it. Like the Frankenstein, the uh, Eddie Van Halen's guitar, where he wanted that really hot Les Paul sound, but he wanted it in a Strat configuration and it's it's interesting. I think there are a lot of parallels creatively with the building and the cars, and I'm sure we'll get into that too. From your early years, do you have a memorable build, or is that that first car you had stick in your mind as sort of like your most memorable early car?
0: I guess for me, like the car that kind of opened my eyes up, because I, I build more of like a traditional style hot rod or custom, you know, a little bit more timeless, not set in any one era. So I ended up getting a Model A Ford, from my brother in laws dad and it was just basically a body when I got it and it was the idea of what that car could be that got me going and I ended up building like the frame all by myself and you know put this small block Chevy engine in it and a four-speed and all this stuff that I figured was you know what that car could have been and uh Later on, after having it on the road for 10 years, I ended up meeting the guy that actually built it in the 60s. Wow. It was his high school hot rod. In 1958, he drove it to high school, and then he drag raced it all through the 60s. And when I got it, it was just the body with the paint from the 60s and the interior from the 60s. So when I put the car together, I tried to make it look like it was a time capsule. Yeah. Hmm. So... And I was kind of into drag racing stuff then, like Camaros and going as fast as we could. And that car kind of opened my eyes up to, you know, like the more traditional style stuff instead of, you know, just muscle cars or whatever.
2: That have been a pretty cool experience for you to, be, get, to get connected with the original owner of the car. Did you get connected with
0: him before you finished the build or after? It was already up and running, and I had been driving the car for like 10 years. Oh wow! It was pretty cool because we ended up meeting on a weekend and he came to my shop and I took him ri- for a ride in the car. And, you know, we ended up becoming friends for, you know, the next 10 years until he passed away. Wow! But, uh, he was telling me a story about when he went back, he was a college professor and he was, uh, telling, you know, one of the people he worked at- with that he found the car he had in high school, you know, and that he had through college and stuff like that. And, the person's all, well yeah, that's kinda like finding an old girlfriend. <laughs> and uh he's like, No, way better, you know. So Yeah, you
3: can't fu- you can't fight with the car.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The car's called the Bluegrass Express and he actually was kinda like a pretty well known folk singer back in the day and just a cool whole existence, you know, also that like came off of the car.
3: What year would this have been when you were working on that car?
0: Probably uh 25 years ago so what like 95 or something
3: so it's not so it's the mid-90s the internet's not really the ubiquitous tool of information that of course it is now how are you learning how to do all this did you have mentors did you were you reading books were were you hanging around mechanic shops how did you acquire the knowledge i mean if, if i couldn't do a fraction of what you're describing if my life depended on it how do you look at a frame and then decide to put this kind of engine in it and get it to a place where you feel safe driving it on the road.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think it kind of evolved into something safe. You know, I think originally when I got it running, like I had a borrowed engine in it and, uh, like the floors weren't all the way done, you know, so you could see the ground and it only had like a five gallon fuel tank, but over time, like I, I learned more and more and more. And, uh, I used to like drive that car all the way to Southern California to hot rod shows to you know, like the Hot Rod Reunion and uh to Paso Roblox car show back in the day and like after a while it got to the point where it, it was safe. But yeah, maybe at first it wasn't so safe. I was just uh you know, just enjoying it anyway, you know. Is
3: there a certain amount of the kind of person you have to be to get involved in this where you're okay driving a car that's not super safe? Is there sort of a, a, a thrill-seeking daredevil aspect to the culture of this world?
0: Maybe a little bit. I mean, I honestly, growing up, uh, you know, like Evel Knievel was a big thing, you know. like So I, I probably thought when I was little, I probably would have been a stuntman more than a car builder, <laughs> you know. So that and the fall guy and Dukes of Hazards and all that, you know, seventies. Stuff that was in our brain you know at that time uh kind of got me going down that direction you know i got in trouble when i was a kid for riding my bike off my roof into our pool <laughs> you know like stupid stuff like that so the know? answer well, is yes the answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah th- maybe a little thrill seeker for sure
2: jump off the roof with an umbrella hope they- <laughs> yeah mix a little <laughs> mary poppins in there Yeah, okay. exactly
3: so before we get into you working and meeting with James, what were you like musically? Uh, were you, growing up in California at that time, were you aware of Metallica? Were you already a Metallica fan? Or were you, list- if you were part of the skate culture, were you listening to punk rock? What were you- Tell us about you as a music lover.
0: Yeah, the, the skate culture was all about, you know, punk rock music. I would have claimed to be like like, maybe my favorite band would have been something like Bad Religion or something like that at the time. But after working on stuff for James and kind of going back through my CDs, I realized I actually had more Metallica CDs (laughs) than Bad Religion CDs. So I might have been more of a Closet Metallica fan at first, you know, because I'd really like always enjoyed it. But like the BMX dudes back then were the, the guys that were listening to metal and, you know, skateboarders or punk rock. So. It was more clicky, I guess, then.
3: I was going to ask you guys, because Ethan could weigh in on this too, also being a skate guy from California. Was there a sense to where liking Metallica
2: or having like Metallica in your tape deck might have been kind of uncool? For me, it, in Southern California, I guess maybe because Metallica, <clears throat> especially in the, the early records, there was a bit of... It's a punk rock attitude in it. Yeah, they're absolutely, especially with Kill Them All a lot of the thrash stuff to us was like yeah it's metal but it's fast like punk rock is so there was it, it, to us it was kind of this hybrid and and i always remember like bands like metallica and anthrax and stuff and and sepultura was like fun to skate to as well as bad religion social distortion pennywise whoever what about you scott
0: well yeah i mean uh, yeah definitely you know corrosion conformity and anthrax were kind of like those bands that were kind of like on the edge of both a little bit more, you know, so like you always kind of dipped into it a little bit. I mean, we had friends that were like more rocker dudes that had quarter pipes, and we had to figure out how to be friends with them so we could go ride the quarter pipe. <laughs> you know, music was the thing that we could tie it all together with.
3: Right. I had the same experience, not not with skate culture, but being growing up in Alabama, different factions of people, you would relate to them through the music. Yeah. And so the skateboarding kids where I was from weren't into punk rock really at all they were into Marilyn manson or they were into like industrial goth rock yeah and so i remember i had the venn diagram i was like some of those bands but that was my way of becoming their friends too it was really about the record collection yeah more than me understanding skate culture and and they weren't really that into guitars or anything so it was it was comparing cds of how we all became friends it's interesting that it was the same for you guys in a different context absolutely
0: Yeah, except for it might not have been CDs yet, you know, like a little
3: early. So how do you go from being this kid who's building his own stuff? At what point do you transition into doing this as a career?
0: Like I said, I had to try to figure out a way to get these cars I wanted, you know, so I'd have to buy maybe the roughest car, you know, stuff that other people wouldn't buy because that's all I could afford and then make them into a, a decent car. I don't know, it just all kind of evolved from wanting that one car when I was done and other people seeing what I was doing and, you know, like, hey, could you do that for me on my car? And I think when it kind of all turned around a little bit was we were about to have our third daughter and I had a normal job, like working at an auto parts store. And my wife actually worked for the phone company and she had all the good benefits and stuff like that. So I ended up staying home with the kids and I have a shop out back to my house, and I just kind of did stuff as I could to make a little extra money, you know, and it all kind of evolved from that.
3: You really can't be overestimated how having a family will kick you in the ass to figure out what you're doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For
3: sure. I was in the same position when we had, I only have one kid, but when we had my daughter, my wife had, had the normal job, and she had to go back to work uh, within six weeks. It's pretty brutal here in the States. Yeah. And I had to take almost a whole year off of touring and I stayed home with my kid and I loved having that time with my kid as I'm sure your daughter did with you, Scott, but as a dude who wants to make stuff and work, it drove me nuts and it really forced me to try to figure out a better situation so that I could be creative, take care of my family, my wife could work, just managing all those dynamics.
0: Yeah, for sure. I had three daughters at the time, you know, so yeah, it was always kind of crazy.
3: What's the first car you remember that like you made like, a good paycheck for where you thought I'm going to do this does anything like that come to mind or were you just stringing a lot of stuff together to make it work
0: I'd start off with something that probably wasn't even considered a project and then maybe I'd get a couple things knocked out on it and make it run and drive and then quadruple my money you know and then I would get like a little bit more equipment and another junky car and then I'd just do it again and you know most of that stuff was all you know like 50s cars so they they all kind of fit like what i was into but i tried not to get super attached to some of them i just was trying to get them to where like i could get most bang for buck
3: i was gonna ask were there any that you you built to try to turn around and make some money and you were like oh shit i can't let this one go
0: dude like probably half of them (laughs) you know (laughs) i'm a car guy i do this because i love this stuff oh yeah yeah there's there's quite a few i'd love to have back but you can't keep them all i probably have like 10 cars right now and maybe five of them run you know and the rest of them are projects that's going to get to them one day kind of thing
2: right yeah and th- that and that stuff happens often as musicians too like th- i can't tell you how many guitars that i've that i've purchased and in my mind okay i'm going to get this guitar i'm going to sell this other one to keep this one and then when it comes down to it i'm like well i can't get rid of both of these or this one now the one the old one okay so maybe i'll fix up the one i just bought and just resell that put some better pickups in it whatever and same thing, I'm like, well, shit, I can't do it. I can't, can't get rid of it. <laughs> do you play music at all, Scott?
0: I wish. I mean, I enjoy music a lot. One of the things, like when we were raising our kids, we always had musical instruments around. You know, we had drum sets and a bass and a guitar and acoustic guitar just because we wanted to make sure, you know, our kids could touch all this stuff. You know, being pretty well-rounded people, you know, as adults. And uh, only one of them, my youngest daughter, actually plays guitar and taught herself and like write songs and done, you know, a couple little uh, little coffee shop kind of shows. That's awesome. You know? So it is cool. Like, I mean, I totally appreciate, like, the idea of building a song, basically, you know, in her head. Kind of like dad building the car in his head. No, totally. My youngest daughter's the one that's in the guitars. And then my middle daughter is like me. She skateboards and has been hanging out in my shop since she was, like, 13. And now she's going to be 23 this year. So. Oh, wow. She could pig weld and do all sorts of stuff. You know, she's super good. That's cool. So,
3: yeah. It's got to be comforting knowing that your daughter knows her way around a car and no one's going to, you know, if someone tries to take advantage of her when she's getting an oil change, she's going <laughs> to yeah, be totally. like, well, I don't, think you, I don't think you understand. My dad builds this shit. You're not yeah. going to rip me off.
0: Yeah. Good tough kid, you know.
3: So walk us through when you met headfield How did how did James come into your life and was it in a professional capacity? Was that the first thing or, or how did your paths cross?
0: So we, we were at the San Francisco Rod and Custom show, kind of a big painted car show and it was super crazy, like all the finished finished stuff. But they kinda had like a basement level where some of the more work in progress cars, home built kind of stuff, you know, would be. And uh we were Starting out as a shop and we were thought we were super cool and we had like five cars there. We had this Model A sedan that was pretty neat and we had figured out a few things on making a lot of room in them and having them sit really low and still be comfortable to drive. And he was actually with another guy that I kind of knew from Tattooing from Sacramento, this guy Wild Bill. And uh, I knew him and I kind of noticed they were looking at the car we brought and I ended up talking to Bill and kind of starting to talk to James. And he had said he was building a sedan and kind of figuring out what direction he was going. You know, so it kind of started there. We, like, lifted up the rope around the cars and had him get in it and fit in it and kind of explained, you know, like, what we did different that works. And, you know, that was kind of the first introduction. And then... uh,
3: What year would that have been?
0: I mean, it was probably, like, ninety. Eight maybe? Maybe 2000. I don't know. Somewhere around there.
3: Were you the type of dude that was like, holy shit, this is James Hetfield. I mean, you sound like such a cool dude. I'm sure you played it cool. But were you thinking like, wow, this is pretty wild. This is James Hetfield of one of the biggest metal bands of all time.
0: Yeah, dude. I mean, it's kind of, you know, like our generation's Elvis or whatever. But I definitely didn't want to come off as a weirdo. Totally. You're super, you know, way too excited, you know. But yeah, it was definitely the highlight of the trip. You know, and then we bumped into each other at other car events for the next probably two years. And we talk and, you know, like, hey, how's that sedan coming? Oh, I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. Finally, by the end, after, you know, maybe running into him like six times, I'm like, when are you going to just drop that thing off? <laughs> you know, and, mm. and he ended up like, OK, yeah, I'll do it. So that's kind of how it started. That car actually never even got finished because his taste kind of changed over time and evolved into a little bit more finished cars and you know and my tastes were evolving at the same time so it just like it hit perfect at the same time yeah that's
3: cool i like the idea of you just finally kind of calling him on it and saying dude let's just fucking do it yeah how soon did you have the idea that like i could finish this project for james not that you counted but did you wait for like you guys had established a rapport like did you know that you wanted to maybe see about finishing that project with him
0: oh the first time i met him i was hoping you know but like the more just conversations we had the more it seemed to could like it could be real
3: so what does that look like when you say hey man drop it off let's let's pull the trigger and he's like okay let's do that what does it look like getting that whatever was already done on the car getting it to your shop did he do it delivered himself did he have someone deliver it did he hang with you and did you guys talk specifics or
0: i think it probably got dropped off and then he showed up kind of thing, you know, like, like, I mean, he had a truck and trailer, you know, and he was hands on a lot of different times with different stuff. But at, at first he just kind of dropped it off and, uh, you know, we went over, it was actually funny cause it was my birthday the day he dropped it off and I probably didn't even mention it to him that day, but I remember thinking, you know, what a birthday present, right. you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and it, he was always super hands on with the planning and you know, especially early on, he was really, really involved because, you know, he wanted to make sure it was going the direction he wanted. He didn't know me from really anybody yet. You know, he didn't know where everything was going to go. He probably had had a couple things done by a couple different people and had different expectations that might not have been met. Like in the start, he was still filling me out. So he
3: had had some finished cars that maybe you were aware of or was, was working with you one of his first times really collaborating on this level?
0: I mean, I know he had a couple cars. He had bought a car from uh, another guy in our car club named Dennis Vale. That was kind of like a little tea bucket thing. And I think that was in the Some Kind of Monster movie, you know, so he had already had that. He had muscle car stuff all through, you know, like, and I don't know if he was just buying those or if he was into the builds on those as much. I think he was pretty much, like, he, he had a pretty good eBay habit, you know, like, he <laughs> You know, be on tour probably and just, oh, yeah, I'll take one of those. Even with parts, you'd buy a couple of each thing, you know, just to figure out, like, what would look better. I guarantee,
3: and maybe, Scott, you know the answer to this, I guarantee you they would travel with one or two extra semis that were probably empty. So that if he did find something on the road, he could just put it in and take it
0: home. He, he had it figured out, I'm sure. He actually had a warehouse in Marin that had a bunch of car parts and stuff like that. And, wow. You know, Then they later on got moved up to his ranch. He's a collector of all sorts of types of things.
3: We've got this thing called Patreon where we have fans of the show who want to ask you questions. So I've got a question from Jay Middleton who says, When you and James have an idea and, a, and game plan it out, does James set a specific budget you're only allowed to work with or is it pretty wide open so there are no restrictions to what you're trying to accomplish so because obviously you know he could do whatever he wants but is he pretty aware of like well i'm really hoping it costs this much and can we make it work for this budget what's that part of it like
0: he always wants value he's not like blank check like money's no object but i was just always really cautious and billing i wanted to make that kind of stuff last as long as possible when we first started doing stuff for him i think we were Sixty-five dollars an hour, you Hmm. know. And now, now we're only eighty, you know. So if I could bill every hour, I'm doing okay. Yeah. I try not to go too far one direction, but it was super cool to be able to like, hey, I got this idea. And if he liked the idea, it wasn't ever really about the time it would take. He just liked the idea.
3: Well, I imagine too, and I feel this way with people that I work with. Once there is a trust established. Ah, uh, he—that's no longer something you really have to worry about. Right. I could see a lot of people in that situation taking advantage of it and saying, "Well, this is James Hetfield. Uh, I'm gonna work it on as long as may, possible. Maybe, maybe it took 20 more hours than it should have because I'm a normal person. He's James Hetfield. Whereas, however long it took for him to realize that you were just all you were interested in was doing good work and having a great relationship. Once that gets opened up, then you really are free to to do the kind of work you want to do. Because I could see it from his point of view too. Is like, look. I want great value, but I'm in a position to where we can really build the way we want to build it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really seemed that way to me after six months of doing stuff and probably with the second car that we did, we did that car twice. So at first we kind of did it like in less than a month, you know, he had bought a car off of eBay. It was a 1936 Ford and he was already in the Beatniks car club and a lot of those dudes are like different types of artists, tattoo artists or lowbrow artists are really well known for whatever they do, like mm-hmm. other car builders. So, and you're in that club too, right? Yeah. He was the person that brought me up and sponsored me, and he was my person who brought me up in the club. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I owe all of that to him. And I'm actually the only guy in the club that he ever sponsored, you know. So, that's pretty
3: cool. Is that a big deal? I mean, the Beatniks Club, is, is it like an exclusive type situation where it's hard to get in?
0: I, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, like not everybody's, you know, like I said, a car builder or an artist or whatever, but quite a few of them are. And then, you know, you just got to really kind of fit. There's a hang around period and then there's a prospect period and, you know, you got to show up. And basically the thing is to have a car that fits this idea of these cars and then actually drive them. I have a 50 Chevy that I drove all the way to Kansas and back for a car show because that's where everybody in the club was hanging out. So from Sacramento to Kansas is a pretty long trip in a a 1950 Chevy.
3: So there's a a vetting process.
0: Oh, for sure. So I I
3: imagine it's got to feel pretty good that there's this club out there that's known, it's very cool, and your guy that's vouching for you is James Hetfield. (laughs) Yeah
0: yeah it was kind of winning for sure you know <laughs> we have people in uh, australia we got a large chapter over there of a lot of famous artists and then we actually have a guy in japan people all over the united states That's cool you know
2: yeah the uh one, the, one of the early times i actually saw metallica was in australia when i was on, on tour with my old band and i remember being because we uh the tour manager i was on tour with knew a bunch of people in metallica camp brought us over to the show in brisbane And I remember being in like the VIP room, just kind of hanging out, having some drinks and seeing Hetfield walk in and went straight up to all these dudes in the car, in the beatniks like cuts and, 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 and shirts and stuff. And I didn't talk to any of them, but I immediately was like, yeah, they're, they're for sure talking cars right now.
0: Yeah, no, I think like he kind of longed for like the normal feeling of just kind of bullshitting with dudes about cars. It might not have been his day to day thing, you know, like music is everything to him, but, uh, You know, maybe like to step out of the rock star and just hang with your brothers in a club kind of thing. It is, you know, probably super appealing to him.
3: Yeah, that seems to be a thread with him for a long time now of shedding the kind of rock star mythos and just being a dude. And I think that's one of the reasons that they've endured too. Yeah, you know, like he doesn't seem like a Bono type that is just always that guy. His approachableness is really. endears him to me and i think the car culture is a big part of that scott i think you're you're right for sure so you said you were saying that the second car you guys started was the 36 ford is that what became the iron fist
0: yeah yeah but originally like we got that car done in a month you know right before the pablo casa robles car show that's now in santa maria You know, we chopped it and we had to build a whole different frame for it and put it on airbags and rewired it and got it running and driving. And basically, the night before that we were going to leave to go to the car show, I drove it to Marin, dropped it off, had dinner with him, and then met him the next morning on the highway on the way there. And, you know, we're hauling ass. That guy actually drives really fast everywhere. (laughs) So I'm in a, my little Model A that we were talking about earlier and it was going at least 90 all the way down the highway. And I'm just going through in my head like, oh God, I hope I got that bolt tied or
1: this or that. You know, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm
0: going to be the guy that, you know, if a wheel falls off, everybody's going to hate me, you know, like, so. <laughs> well, cause you were telling um, me,
3: you were telling me on the phone that that car had zero miles on it. No one had ever really driven it, right?
0: Yeah, I drove it from Sacramento to Marin and gave it to him. And that was it. Like, that was the shakedown. And then wow. here he is, yeah, at least 90 the whole way. And it made it with no hitches. But, yeah, it was definitely, there was a couple times it was kind of stressful.
3: So moving on from the Iron Fist, where did you guys go next from that?
0: Then we started on the uh, straight edge pickup. I want to back up just a half a second. But the Iron Fist wasn't what it was. Like It was, it was just a black primered, kind of rough around the edges. You know, more hot rod than what it is today. So we we got that car to that point, and he was digging, driving it around and stuff like that. And he brought the truck. Somebody had already kind of made it into an extra cab, but it had like a weird flatbed on the back. And I saw some pictures of it, like with a golf cart on the back of it or something like that. Some dude had built it in his garage. The shape was kind of cool, like for a stock truck that was made into an extra cab because they never made them that way. But... Other than that, it had like the goofiest hubcaps and nothing else was really done. So it got dropped off and it was like, yeah, it was kind of like, let's chop it and put a bed on it, you know, and like, okay, cool. You know, like set up the suspension and then we start looking at it and we're like, whoa, well, this is pretty sketchy and this is super sketchy. So we came up with a game plan and, you know, redid a lot of the chassis. And then once we got that all going good, we did a bunch of custom stuff on the front of the truck and he had an idea of using a Chrysler grill and quad headlights and all this stuff that are on that truck now. And the whole front of the truck was really, really custom. And the back was still this super square bed. So I had uh, an idea of taking a 57 Ranchero and using the tailgate on that because it kind of swept forward a little bit. And so we put all that together. And then we were looking at this parts car and we're like, maybe we could take the quarter panel off of that and put it on the fender, you know? So we started screwing around with that and get it mocked up and send them some pictures and like, go for it. It just all kind of evolved, you know, and everything like on that car. At that time, you know, it's fairly early. I had four guys and we were, we were kind of at the edge of our threshold of, you know, like we were learning a little bit as we went, trying to be better and better and better. It was still kind of at the edge of what we could do to get, that kind of car built and we did and nailed it yeah you know we've learned so much on that and then by the time that was finishing up he was like well hey let's look up 36 again you know i want to finish that car and make it nice then the whole thing turns around on that and then you know by then we have it a lot more figured out and you know, we're going a little bit higher and You know, there's stuff in that car. Like, as far as I know, nobody before us did it. We put air conditioning unit in that out of, like, an electric car. Oh, wow. Usually on a regular car, there's a compressor on the engine. And we had the engine so detailed and looks perfect and, you know, not cluttered by all these accessories. And we didn't want to put an AC compressor on the engine. So I did a bunch of research and... Nobody was really doing it yet, so we like got in touch with these people. They were doing them for uh, electric car conversions and for like sleeper cabs on uh, semi-trucks. Okay. And we basically figured out how to adapt that to run off of just two car batteries instead of a few of them. like That would be in a regular electric car. It was pretty interesting.
2: That's cool. So you're, bas- you're basically uh, keeping the engine as you intended on that one. And yeah. So with that, would that AC, it be kind of like hidden. If you if you were to pop the hood, are you even can you even see that in there?
0: Yeah, there's no indication, you know, like that it has AC at that's all.
2: Cool. It's cool to hear of how much possibility there is for innovation.
3: When you're saying you're doing things that hadn't really been done before, is this something that you would you can go on to
0: patent? Yeah, I mean, I never do something that's the same every time. You know, a lot of times people come in, and it's probably the worst part of my business plan. I think is uh, you know it'd be a lot easier to do the same thing every time. Because you can get more efficient and do it faster and make more money and make it more production, but that's kind of boring. You know, I'd rather like come up with, you know, new ideas and push it every time if we can.
2: Yeah. I, I think there's going to be be more longevity in that in your world as well with uh, just your name and, and what it's attached to. And in that car world of people recognizing that, oh, here, here's this dude, that he's not doing the same thing every time. Every time he shows up to a car show, it's something really cool and innovative and like, maybe something we haven't even seen yet. And that's where the art form of it comes in.
3: Yes. You know, there's there, there's a balance here between, and Scott, this would be interesting to hear you speak to, there's a real balance between it, these things being pieces of art, but then also being functional. You can go out and drive them. I don't know if any of these would be someone's daily driver, but have you and James ever talked about that? The connection between it being art and being a, almost like self-expression too. Like you're saying, you're throwing around, Man, we could do this, we could try that. This hasn't been done before, we'll figure it out. Versus the functionality, the pragmatism of having a car you can drive around?
0: Actually, like the cool thing about both those cars is they were designed to be driven first. And then the cosmetic of it, you know, kind of came after that. It's like building a house. You start with a foundation, you know, and the foundations we start with are always made to be driven. Right. There's some people that only do like kind of a shell of outside of a car. One of the interesting things about being in the Peterson Museum is, we never went for building a museum kind of car. We were building cars to be driven and go have fun, but still have the look and have everything work and do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. In the truck, there's a whole big center dash piece that's out of a Buick, like a '50s early 50s Buick. And you twist the knob that says self-destruct, and the whole thing comes down, and then there's like a double den stereo in there, oh, and wow. the ignition switch, and you know, that was hooked to a satellite. It had everything, you know, that, but it was on the surface looked really simple and clean, you know, more sixties style, all the technological stuff is hidden. Yeah. And then we even, uh, think had a full stereo system in it for sure. God, I'm trying to remember the name of the company. We even got hooked in with these guys that were actually building the only subs that were, uh, designed for metal instead of, uh, <laughs> like rap face, like boom, boom, boom stuff. Like yeah, um, 808s and stuff. So
3: James can listen to Megadeth when he's on the road.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got to keep his yeah his 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 buddies close. I guess. By
3: the way, congrats on on your cars making it to the Peterson Museum. I mean, that must have been quite an honor for you. Let alone that it was attached to James. But and it's also go- those cars going to be featured in the book that's coming out as well, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Like I said, like we're we're just like building stuff that. You know, we enjoy and think it's cool. And then to have, like, that's like, I I don't even know art, you know, well enough to know what a good art museum to be in would be. But, like, that's it for us. You know, like, that's as as big as it gets. And then the whole idea that after this exhibit is done at the Peterson, they're going to loan it out and it's going to tour other museums around the world. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. You know, and then the book—it's going to be touched by so many people.
3: Well, it's it's an amazing accomplishment, dude. So, congrats yeah, on that! Another patron, Gene Froman, asks: Which of these projects with James was the most challenging, and why?
0: I think the the, the Straight Edge, the Purple Truck. We were still kind of like cutting our teeth a little bit on that one. You know, like uh, you know, we had all these grandiose ideas but like to have it actually work and function and do what it's supposed to do definitely uh that that was definitely harder than the 36 because we'd kind of like caught stride and had the right people in there and we definitely had it a little bit more figured out we had built other cars that were really nice and then had been in shows and won some awards and stuff like that but they weren't necessarily show cars.
2: yeah
3: where
0: those cars were kind of you know, had all the attention to detail that we could throw at it. So top and bottom, they were done really well all the way throughout.
3: Ralph Chaveto asked, Do you have a favorite between the two? Which has gotta be like choosing between two of your children, I imagine.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is tough, but I mean I would definitely pick the truck. It's just beautiful to me. I really enjoy that one. If I was gonna build something for myself later and clone something, I guess, out of everything I've ever built, like That would be the one I would clone.
3: That truck is jaw-droppingly beautiful. It's
0: amazing, yeah.
3: Who decided on that purple, kind of metallic purple color?
0: Well, you know, I think it had to tie into the Beatnik thing because, I mean, our color is purple, you know. So uh, a dude named Jason Haskins, he's in Auburn, California now, but he was in Sacramento at the time, came up with the colors and did some spray outs. And, you know, actually James came and we compared some colors and put them in the sun and, you know, it ended up being... Pretty darn cool, and
2: that's a big part of choosing a color too is getting it in the sun. Because if you're in a warehouse with just like office lighting, you know, tube lights or whatever, it might look oh that looks great. You get it out in the sun. Same thing goes with guitars. You take it out in the sun, and all all of a sudden it's like oh that doesn't look nearly as good as it did inside, right? You know, like especially with cars. I mean, the ideas that they are made to be driven, and they're obviously going to be spending almost all their time outdoors, especially in California. We get way more sun than a lot of us.
0: Yeah. And then, I mean, like you look at that truck in different light, you know, in the morning versus later in the day versus at night, the colors change so much. Yeah. And there's so much depth on that truck, you know, in the paint. Definitely, you know, it's important to look at it. And there's all that shape. So as a Mm -hmm. fender rounds around, you don't want the colors to look flat in any angle. So you got to get stuff that pops in all lights.
2: Man, I hope this, uh, I hope after it's at the Peterson, I hope this thing comes somewhere near Nashville because I'd love to see it in person. Me too.
3: Absolutely. It might even be worth trying to get out to California to go see it. Yeah. I think they're going overseas, aren't they, Scott?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. Like, I mean, I don't know what museum's going to be first, but it doesn't even have to be auto museums. It's going to be other museums. Yeah. So. I'm kind of interested to see where it does end up and, you know, if I'll be invited to those openings too.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that the, uh, the the main art museum in town here is the Frist, and they actually, uh, every once in a while, they'll do uh, automobile-like exhibitions. Cool. It's really cool. So maybe it'll end up here. Who knows? So Ralph Chaveto also asked, how long do these projects take from
3: start to finish? So the, the 36 obviously went through a few iterations.
0: Right. Yeah, the first time was just like, it's almost as, as silly as like one of those TV shows where they're trying to do stuff. It's crazy fast, and we like worked all night sometimes on it to get it done in this one-month deadline. But then the other builds, you know, they, they were probably two years, maybe a little bit more. Wow. It's so many hours. It's just crazy. It takes a lot of time, and then, you know, depending upon his schedule and what he got going touring. I mean, honestly, like I think he was more in a rush when he was touring because he wanted to see stuff getting done then uh you know maybe when he was at home you know he's busy with his family and having a good time doing normal people stuff and he needed that kind of back home attachment or whatever with the car stuff
2: well it's 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 probably his way of being somewhat hands-on without actually being there too yeah for sure the way that they tour they have a lot
3: of off time would he ever like fly out during a tour to just check on progress or put his head together with you to move forward with the project? Or did he do all that remotely while he was traveling?
0: There would be times like I talk to him once a week or more on the phone. And then usually when he's home, we are only a couple hours away from Marin. So I even got to go to the HQ one time and like show him different renderings of stuff. And, you know, I got to watch them practice, which was Pretty amazing.
3: Cool. That was going to be another question of mine. We can kind of segue into this. I mean, we are a Metallica podcast after all. So, yeah, what kind of cool access have you had just by virtue of being... Because I imagine through all these years and through connecting on this level with Cars, with James, you guys became buddies, of course, and... For you as a music lover and maybe even a Metallica fan, what's some of the cool types of stuff like going to HQ and seeing the band practice you've been able to do that kind of centers around the band?
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that was one of the biggies for sure. Pretty much in the club, like anybody that, you know, wanted a ticket for whatever town they were in that was close to you, you were uh, pretty much were on the guest list. So I probably got to see them, I don't know, over a half a dozen times. And then we were at their their big anniversary one in in San Francisco. Oh, cool.
3: Which did you, you know, go to I'm, all four nights, or did you just go to one of the nights?
0: No, we just went to one night. I think it was the second night if I remember right. But we were kind of there was the upstairs like family area, off on the like left hand side of the stage. Yeah.
3: This was at the Fillmore. Fillmore. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah at the Fillmore. <laughs>
3: what was that show like? For you, from your perspective,
0: super amazing, you know, and like we just had the perfect bird's eye view. And Jim Brewer super funny. He was kind of tying some of that stuff in, and I like I didn't really know what to expect, so it was kind of, you know, it was all over the place. It was super amazing. And uh, other dudes in our car club were there, and you know, I got to bring my wife, and so that was like one of the definite top shelf.
2: I mean that's one of the most unique Metallica shows they've ever done. Oh, it's 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 a historic show. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, and I, I definitely appreciated that the whole time. One of the more exciting things for us was uh the thirty-six Ford also was in their, their movie. Oh, that's right. In Through the Never. Yeah, into the Never. And then we gotta to go to the opening and my family sat right in front of James's family. Next to James's family with Sammy Hagar. <laughs> awesome.
3: That was James's cameo when he pulls up in the garage. Yeah. And you see James with the sunglasses on. That's that Iron Fist, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I didn't cool. even realize that. That's so cool.
0: Blue Collar Customs got a movie credit, which is, you know, <laughs> pretty unbelievable. That's awesome.
3: Well, uh, that that leads me into this too. And there's another uh, Metallica story that you told me on the phone that I do want to talk about on the show because I thought it was so cool. But what, is it, what does it do for the profile of, of your business now that, I mean, you're, you're in this Peterson Museum, you are going to be in the book, it's going to go on tour, you were in the movie. Does this change things for you as a as a business person?
0: Well, it, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it could be said that it can be, you know, coming up, hopefully, you know. It's not like people are pounding down our doors to spend, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> right. We're like a little shop in Sacramento, you know, with four guys, you know, that get to build cool stuff. You know, we're not in L.A. or San Francisco where there's a ton of traction around all this stuff. Yeah. But, I mean... We're, we're open to any you know quality builds, pretty much, hopefully, as time goes on. I'm, I never got into this to be like, I'm not trying to get rich doing this. I'm trying to build cool cars yeah. and enjoy what I do. Would you like you to know? chop
2: my 97 Forerunner? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I can
3: probably hunt that Chevy Nova down at my grandparents somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, it has to be earlier stuff, man, unfortunately. Ah. <laughs> well, one of the things that
3: you mentioned on the phone that I thought was really... A a great point is is you said, Well, on the one hand, your profile's been raised for all the obvious reasons. You said, But on the other hand, people might assume that because you're working with James Hetfield and you're in the Peterson Museum, that you may be unattainable or unaccessible, but you charge 80 bucks an hour for whatever you do. So, uh, you know, we'll put it out there to our listeners too. I mean, any client that needs work done. That's the rate, right,
0: yeah, no, totally. We don't deviate from that at all, but we'll take the time to do stuff right and give people quality and value
2: when you mentioned the uh, that you wouldn't work on my ninety seven four owner what <laughs> is um what is the year cutoff for you guys and what you will work on
0: I mean it's not even necessarily like I don't know, we have worked on newer things before, but like under special circumstances sure. we just worked on a brand new dodge truck for a customer who uh his daughter needed a wheelchair lift and he couldn't get anybody to cut up this brand new truck to get it to fit in his truck. Oh wow. You know, so we're not out there advertising that that's the kind of stuff we want to do, sure. you know, necessarily, but if it's a good enough cause or whatever. Dude, we'll that's do, super uh, cool. That's really cool. It's
3: yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, so, so excluding James's cars, we'll put those off the table, but let's say a car similar to that kind of work, like what you did with the iron fist and the straight edge truck. What does that cost? Like, what is there a way to talk about that that's not gratuitous?
0: You know what I mean. We've got cars finished for around a hundred thousand dollars that maybe aren't that crazy of a car, like like where they're top and body, bottom, every nut and bolt, like amazing, good shape, rad, custom cars. Mm-hmm. But both those cars were probably tipping like two fifty or something like that. Hmm. Those are the only cars we've ever booked that were that expensive. <laughs> so it doesn't happen that often. But like on that. Thirty-sixth floor, the iron fence. He wanted to try to go win awards with it, so every bolt on that car was stainless steel, and we put the head of every bolt in a, a lathe and turned the head so they had like kind of like a spiral finish on them. Wow! And then all the bolts were indexed the same direction, like on the engine. I mean, we got, we got kind of kooky. That's I mean, those are
2: some minute minute details to really. You know, you're picking it out with a fine tooth comb at that point, but but uh, fully. But like you said, I mean, if, if Heffy wants to get out there and win awards with this car, then that's the kind of work you got to put in, I guess. It just sounds like a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm super fortunate. Yeah, it's definitely amazing. It's a feather in my cap, you know, all the way around. Yeah, absolutely, man. Do you
3: have any other celebrity celebrity clients?
0: Actually, through, through James, we got to meet a guy named Robert Gallery, who played for the Raiders. Oh, wow. Um, he's a big, giant lineman guy we did a couple cars for him. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, that's, that's about it really.
3: Is there a sense where, because James is who he is, is there a sense where maybe he has an idea that's not great or not doable where you have to, you have to be like, no, (laughs) you know what I mean? Is there, is there that kind of dynamic at play at all?
0: I'm sure that actually happened maybe a little bit, you know, with a couple of different things, especially early on, like when he was kind of figuring out his style a little bit, I, nothing really comes to mind. But, I mean, we got along well enough that he could call me on something and I could call him on something, you know.
3: And I imagine you have to have that to really do the quality of work you guys are doing. You yeah. have to be able to have that kind of trust and give and take, for sure.
0: Yeah, you don't want to get done and have, like, like this one pimple on your, on your build. You know, you're like, eh, it's great, except for that.
3: So the story that you tell me on the phone that I loved is you had gone to see The Sword in a tiny club... And both Lars and James were both there.
0: Yeah, no, that was pretty rad. We went for uh, one of the guys in our club for his birthday, and we're in San Francisco, and we're upstairs in like a little small room that had a balcony and stuff, and we're just hanging out. And twenty minutes in, in walks walks Lars, and you know we're by this time used to hanging out with James, but pretty- he pretty normal and we're comfortable around him. Yeah. So we were like, Hey, what's going on? you know, like did the little introduction thing and it was, you know, kinda short and sweet and then we're back on to watching the sword play and uh kinda like look over my shoulder and they're like, you know, hanging out and look over again and, and James is actually air drumming.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm like, Huh, that's kinda interesting, you know, and I look back a little bit farther and Lars is actually air guitaring. <laughs> so it's like that's so backwards like but you know like maybe they secretly want to be each other I, I don't know but that, uh, It's a cool, you know, that,
2: a cool moment either way
0: yeah t- totally it was just like it was definitely like that's rad. Like they're that comfortable hanging out and having a good time that like they're not worried about like, oh yeah, somebody's gonna laugh at me. You know, right. They're just digging the whole moment and having a good time. It's definitely pretty surreal.
3: Yeah. It's gotta it's gotta be pretty interesting to hear your phone buzzing and look down and it says James Heffield. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was weird like to be able to like yeah, go to my contacts and actually even I never texted anybody on the phone before I met James. Like, he's the very, very, very first person I ever texted.
2: That's funny. Wow. That's probably how Ethan feels every time I text him. It's true.
3: He, just,
0: <laughs> he can't
2: believe it's me. I'm like, oh my God, do I, how do I even respond to this?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I have technical difficulties sometimes. So yeah, it's kind of funny. He opened me up to a new world. And I also never knuckled anybody before I met James Petfield. So I never done knuckles. You know, that was the first person I did knuckles with. We went to tons of car shows together and walked around and I learned to walk really fast and not make eye contact, <laughs> you know, to kind of like keep on going. But like he was always so good about not doing autographs today, just kind of hanging out, you know. he was always way more receptive to people that I would be. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Yeah,
2: I mean, when he goes to these things, I mean, he, just, he doesn't want to be there necessarily as James from Metallica. He just wants to be there as a car lover.
0: Yeah, no, I, I really think like a lot of the appeal with all this stuff, with the car club and the car stuff, was you know just being a normal dude. Yeah, it's so hard for him to just blend in, you know, and he's trying to blend in a little bit more.
3: Right, it's tough, you know, because on on the one hand he's a human being, he's a guy that likes cars and likes other shit. On the other hand, he's not really normal because he's the guy that <laughs> played and wrote all this Metallica <laughs> yeah. stuff. So I'm totally, this is such a it's such a tough balance. I like hearing that. You had to, like, sort of adopt his method, which is just move fast, don't make eye contact, don't don't cause a scene, just keep moving through, you know?
0: It wasn't even, like, him trying to ignore people, but it was him trying to get a minute. Yeah.
3: Do you and James have any projects on the docket, or is anything coming up that's cool that you can talk about?
0: No, I wish I did. I mean... uh kind of think he's taking a little break from cars trying to get his stuff together right. and mm-hmm. hopefully one day you know he kind of came in and did it all he doesn't have a lot more stuff to accomplish in the car realm like he right did it, all.
3: it does seem like the book coming out is sort of like a capstone a little bit on you know over a decade of that kind of work
0: yeah no i mean like i said he came in and just killed everything you know like he did everything to the highest level he kind of like check that box and maybe go on to whatever he has going on with his family and stuff like that or last time i talked to him he was kind of saying you know like they're starting to be empty nesters because The kids are in school and gone sometimes, and it's just like, he's digging it.
2: Yeah, totally, man.
0: Well, we can
3: kind of wrap with this, too. So what's next just for you outside of the James Hetfield thing? What's up with uh, Blue Collar Customs? Like, what's going on this year for you?
0: Well, I mean, we got a couple cars we're trying to get finished up for, like, the next show season, which will start, like, in Pomona. Both really traditional-style custom cars. And just uh, get off the, the phone and go to work and get greasy and weld something and go on with my normal day.
3: Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much. I know that you sort of took a little bit of the morning off to make time to talk to us and yeah, we appreciate. We that, really man. couldn't thank you enough, man. You're such a cool cat and letting us into your world and helping us understand it and congrats again on the Peterson Museum and the book and, you know, we wish you the best in the future and I hope the attention you're getting for the work you're doing pays off because it's well-deserved.
0: Absolutely. All right, man. Thank you guys so much. Hold on, boom!
3: Well, there you have it, folks. Scott Mugford from Blue Collar Customs. What a sweetheart. So interesting hearing about his life getting into custom cars and how he crossed paths with James Hetfield and getting an interesting peek into a part of James's life that helps him feel centered and connected to being a human being, being a normal guy. All really cool stuff. Next week, we will be talking to Jimmy Clark, who is Lars Ulrich's drum tech. We look forward to that. If you want to ask our guests like Scott Mugford or Jimmy Clark, or Chad Z, James's guitar tag, Jay Weinberg of Slipknot, members of Hailstorm, Michael Alago, Michael Wagner, etc. If you want to ask any of our guests questions, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, dot com slash Metal Up Your Podcast. And you get all sorts of other things over there too, but it's a way for us to uh, say thank you for supporting the show. We really couldn't do the show without the support of our patrons. So a special shout out to them, and really to all of you out there in Metal Up Your Podcast land. We really love you. We're really grateful to have you listening and we'll see you next week on the flip-flop peace
0: (laughs) if you were our advisor what would you say then i would say delete that